millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What is it about Julia Gillard? Loved and loathed, she became one of Australia's most taunted political figures. She also captured more hearts and shaped more female ambition than possibly any other woman in Australian history. So what has her rollercoaster ride taught us all about how turbulent the world really is for women? Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. You know, there's been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again! Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about women, power and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Hausiger and I'm delighted to share with you this special episode of Broad Talk. Ahead of Series 2, which kicks off in 2021 in January, I wanted to close off this crazy year with a big, bold conversation that unpacks some deep and perhaps even uncomfortable truths around women, power and, most importantly, progress. My big question to Julia Gillard centres on gender equality. Are we there yet? If not, why not? What's the hold-up? And why does it feel like we're going backwards? But first, I want to take a moment to say thank you. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast journey. I've really loved bringing it to you. So much so that I can't wait to push play on the next series, as we've got an incredible lineup of national and international guests. That starts in late January, so please stay tuned. The best way to keep in touch is via our Broad Talk Facebook group. It's called Broad Talk Roundtable. So just find Broad Talk, the page on Facebook, click on Groups, then click Join, and Kat, Martin or me will throw open the door and let you in. And note that Broad Talk is all one word. I post there regularly with links to some of the hot issues, essays, articles, or just pose the odd question. And I'd love to hear from you. So pop in and join us. Let us know what you think. Now, back to this special episode. I first interviewed Julia Gillard more than 15 years ago for a book I was writing on childlessness and women's choices around fertility. It was a pretty tough topic for Julia, who was publicly ridiculed for her so-called barren womb after she was photographed sitting next to an empty fruit bowl in her kitchen. But over the many years that followed, my hunch about her spine of steel proved true. 
Julia Gillard is one of the most resilient and one of the warmest women I've ever met. We recorded this interview on an unusually quiet day for Julia. She'd just spent a couple of months doing a whirlwind round of interviews following the launch of her book, Women and Leadership, Real Lives, Real Lessons. Written in partnership with the Nigerian trailblazer Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela, Julia opens the book by explaining that she and Ngozi met briefly for the first time back in 2011 at Chogham, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting held in Perth when Julia was Prime Minister and Ngozi was Nigeria's Finance Minister. In a sweet moment of synergy, I too met Ngozi back then as I was MC at a dinner held on the eve of that chogum called Empowering Women to Lead, hosted by Julia and the then Governor-General Dame Quentin Bryce. It was the first time a women's event had been included in Chogham and the mood in the Grand Ballroom was electric. After dinner, I facilitated a robust panel discussion with five of the most senior women in the Commonwealth, which included the feisty Ngozi. I loved her forthright, no-nonsense manner from the moment she first spoke. But now, nearly a decade later, as Julia and I settled in to talk about women and leadership, I asked Julia how she and Ngozi managed to write a book together and suggested that, from my perspective, the dominant voice in women and leadership seemed to be Julia's. So did she do most of the writing? on it together and we had to be really organised. You know, it's the first time I've tried to do something with a co-author and it's a different experience than sitting in your own zone writing a book the way that I wrote my story. So what we did is we got very clear on the concept, how we wanted to lay it out, the hypotheses that we wanted Mm -hmm. to explore, who we wanted to interview. We had very comprehensive chapter plans and we did that through discussions with each other and then pushing drafts back and forth. Then we did the interviews and so we ended up with big long transcripts because, you know, the spoken word translates into so many Mm -hmm. pages so quickly. And we held true to our original concept note. I did most of the original drafting. Ngozi did draft some sections, but I did most of the original drafting. And then we would go back and forth with edits in track changes and discussions, you know, by telephone or by Zoom or when we could be together in person to keep refining it and refining it. I found the the early section in the book where you both write your own pieces, yours particularly fascinating. This book strikes me as something that obviously you couldn't have written 10 years ago. You weren't asking these sorts of questions 10 years ago. But it almost strikes me like reading through it that you've you've reached out to the world and to these amazing women leaders to have these extraordinary conversations to kind of work out what happened and why it was that you were served up such a shit sandwich when it comes to sexism when you were prime minister and and you were being battered by the media it's almost like you you're asking that question of others you know what, what what's happening here what's going on is that a, is that a, a fair kind of assessment was it a journey of learning for you in that respect 
That's a really fair assessment. I did leave the Prime Ministership, you know, with a whole bundle of experiences, many of them joyful and good, and I'm a big advocate for politics and for people aspiring to be national or state political leaders, and I'm certainly very encouraging of women to do that. So I left, you know, with this huge set of memories, but I left with some sense of puzzlement about... Mm the gender piece, you know, mm. you would, um, I would, when I was writing my story and reflecting back deeply on my time as Prime Minister, I'd find myself constantly running up against the same questions, you know, how much of this was the temper of the political times, it was about mm. Australia in those years, how much of it was about me as an individual and decisions I made, and how much of it was simply because I was a woman. And I've spent a lot of time in the years since asking and re-asking those questions and the book enabled me, as does my work at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, to get much more context to answer them. So reaching out to other women was a revelation for me in that sense. Mm. It's, I found it really interesting in my story, your, your extraordinary biography, you actually say, I'm not given to self-analysis. And yet, again, I get the sense that through the journey of writing this book on women and leadership, you, you do do a lot of self-analysis, a lot of, a lot of questioning. I mean, particularly even where you, you talk about, you know, during your time in politics that you weren't, you sort of lacked a, and, and well, you say a sense of connection and solidarity. You, you, you'd kind of lost a sense of that nourishing of the spirit that one gets from sisterhood and from feminism. Yeah, I do explore that in the book, and I guess that is self-analytical. I hadn't really uh, thought of the contradiction between those two statements before. I think in this period of my life, I've got more time and space to be self-analytical. I'm, you know, when I was in politics, because the drive of it is so relentless, uh, partly just the speed of what you need to do, the media agenda, mm. the daily political agenda, you know, every minute is over full of tasks that need to be done right then. It doesn't give you much space to just, you know, self-reflect. You've got to keep moving. So I do have more time for that now. And I also feel, I guess, I've got more licence for it now. I'm at the mm. stage of my life where I don't have uh, further ambitions for self, if I can put it that way. I joke with people that I'm well and truly reconciled that the first line of my obituary is already written. It will record <laughs> that I was the first woman to lead Australia. And once you get to that point, it actually does give you a <laughs> sense of freedom about what else you can pick and select to do. So I do yeah. things I'm interested in and I do want to use the time to not constantly analyse my own experiences because they're only, you know, interesting a bit. Um, you know, they're interesting to me. I hope they're a bit interesting to others, but I think they're far more of use when they're put in a broader context and that's what I've tried to do in the book. It is interesting, though, that you've you've taken the journey to, to unpack these questions. I mean, again, you know, I noticed that when you were in politics and when you were, you know, forging forward at, at, at that, that, you know, very fast pace, you didn't wave the gender flag 
a lot. I think you were very aware of trying to get more women into the room, as you put it, I think, at one stage. But but you also say yourself in your book, you know, I, I didn't really think about what would shift if, if there was an increase in representation of women you're talking about, but what would shift? But you've really done that questioning now and that, that analysis now like you needed to go back and unpack it. And I, I couldn't help but wonder, well, Gloria Steinem's line came to mind as I was reading through your book. She talks about um, women becoming more radical and even more more feminist as they get older. Is that what's happened to you? I don't think that's what's happened to me. I think it is really this more space question and different seasons of your life and different opportunities. I do in the book reflect right back to my feminist roots when I was at Adelaide University and first learned the word feminism. And then, you know, there were quite sharp divisions between women who were saying, look, the only way of defeating the patriarchy is to uh, move entirely away from it into women's only spaces, women's only power structures, and any attempts to kind of bend current structures to more feminist outcomes is wholly misconceived. I was never in that camp, and I'm not in that camp now. I still believe that the power structures of our society, while they need a renovation and reform, I'm still uh, progressive in every sense, that women need to be in those power structures and in equal numbers. But during the years when I did have to absolutely keep moving, the more emotional connections from being in women's only spaces, which I always enjoyed, you know, and I enjoyed in my time at university, even though I didn't fully adopt that vision of the future. I've had the time and space to refine that. So I wouldn't say more radical. I would agree with you more reflective and just simply the joy of more opportunity. It's interesting too, though, the way in the book you do make it clear, as you've just said, that you're not trying to, you're not going down the separatist feminist kind of line at all. And it's more about understanding, unpacking power and understanding what are the barriers and obstacles to, to women's participation. But then I wonder about norms. I mean, when we talk about social norms and current social norms, which are so masculinized when it comes to leadership, are we still trying to, to work out a way for women to assimilate, to actually understand those male norms and assimilate? Or is it time to be pushing back and disrupting those norms entirely and saying, you know what, women don't necessarily do it like that? I think to answer that, we've just got to go to the assumption in the question. And I'm always really careful about this assumption (laughs) because I'm not a believer uh, that men and women's brains are inherently different. I spend some time in the book unpacking that. Uh, Cordelia Fine, a wonderful academic at the University of Melbourne, writes so compellingly on what she ends up terming uh, terming, uh, neuro sexism, not neuroscience. So we're not inherently different, but we're socialised differently. 
And I think a truly equal view of the future is one where a commanding and controlling female leader could prosper and an empathetic, nurturing, team-focused male leader could prosper, that we wouldn't be getting those adjectives for leadership style and putting them on genders and saying one gender is better at this Mm. or that. But to come then to your question more directly... I actually think we're kind of doing both at the same time now. And if you look around the world, in many ways, it depends on how far along the journey to gender equality societies are. So, for example, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, who's very clear that she's got more political space because she's the third woman to lead mm. the country, mm. has uh, foregrounded kindness and a different way of doing things, what people in the current world would see as a very feminine style of Mm. leadership. And it's been endorsed by the community in New Zealand. You know, she's been a very popular leader at many points of her prime ministership. So, you know, she can disrupt. I think for the first woman who comes along, who's just trying to show that women can do it, there's probably less space to do this the disruption. And I think when we turn to the business community, to universities and all the rest of it, um, other structures in our society, uh, they're at different points of that journey. Jacinda is a really interesting example and it was, you know, your your, um, discussion of her and with her in the book is, is fascinating, particularly when we talk about the imagery around women and I'm going to go straight to that really powerful image of the scarf um, after the that shocking Christchurch tragedy when she donned the scarf and she was seen hugging uh, women from the, the Muslim community and those images went around the world and I remember thinking at the time you know it's beautiful and it's it's exactly what a leader should do at this time but I also worried that because she was suddenly being um, celebrated as this almost goddess-like leader who was the mother of the land, that the moment she behaved in a way that was not necessarily motherly or gentle um, or caring, she would be criticised for for acting outside that norm, that gender norm, that gender stereotype. And look, you know, as you well know, you can't, you know, no matter what you do one way or another, you're going to be criticised. But, uh, you know, I just wondered whether she was the, – the, the beauty and the power of her the demonstration of a very female leadership at that time. And look, I'm with you. I don't I don't buy into the traits as such, but there was there's a real sort of norm around that mothering gesture, whether that also can do us some damage. I think there is a conundrum here and it's about the pedestal because women leaders mm. are still rare because we want them to succeed, because we want to see a more gender-equal world, because we know that the successes and failures of an individual woman leader are quite likely to be painted across all women in a way that doesn't happen to men, I think we easily succumb to putting women leaders who are succeeding up on a pedestal. 
And Mm. there is an incredible trap in that. You're absolutely right because no one gets it right the whole time. The higher you are up on a pedestal, the further you've got to fall. And we can move, and I've seen people do this, move very quickly from idealising to being Mm. super critical because Mm. one error has been made. And in the book, we actually talk about that too, where the women pay a greater price for making errors and conclude that they probably do, uh, partly because of this visibility issue being one of so few women who are out on the global stage. Uh, so, yes, I can understand why you were worried about that. To date, I think it hasn't uh, reverberated like that for Jacinda. And when no. we asked her about that, she um, said, look, there was... Um, a real difference between the reaction of the New Zealand community and the global reaction, not in the sense that the New Zealand community didn't share the sense of uh, wonder about that image, but for them it was then back to business as usual, what are you doing for us, what are you doing as Prime Minister? She didn't feel that there was this afterglow that meant she wasn't um, in a a more normalised slipstream of Mm. politics. So in her own own country, she was less worried about that pedestal and potentially falling off it. It's interesting, isn't it, how how these things can be read differently by different audiences? Because I, I think we experienced that also with you, with the misogyny speech. Those here in Canberra in the press gallery saw that speech differently from the rest of the world <laughs> and the rest of the country. And I, I thought it was quite fascinating that the gallery, um, you know, particularly senior commentators in the gallery, went straight to the issue that was the issue, the political issue of the day, which was Peter Slipper and becoming the speaker and issue around inappropriate texts he'd been sending, whereas what the rest of the world, and I'm including the rest of the country, the public picked up was the power of the speech. It was just, it was, it was dynamite. Um, and the gallery didn't see it that way because they just saw it in terms of the politics of the day. So it's, 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 a, it's about context and audience, isn't it? It it is very much about context and audience and it is a reminder that you can be way too close to stuff and it's not Mm. just the uh, Canberra Press Gallery that uh, gets the the tunnel vision and the uh, inability to see the big picture. I mean, their day-to-day job when Parliament is sitting is kind of to call the play, particularly question time, you know, who won, who lost, who did well, Mm. you know, who was the best player on ground, you know, it's got a kind of football match um, sort of style to it and they aren't lifting their eyes and saying, and what does this mean in a far broader context? But it was a, a, a failing and I... I'm not so much critical of the gallery missing it on the day. I can understand why they missed it on the day, uh, but some of them went on to miss it day after day after day, (laughs) and uh, that was and still don't get it. (laughs) You know, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And look, speaking of the bigger picture, I do want to move on to that and talk about what an extraordinary year 2020 has been, and not just because of the global pandemic, but all the other things that 2020. Is representing, but uh, we'll do that in just a moment. We're just going to break now for a, a very quick uh, break. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. You're with Virginia Hausiger, and I'm delighted to be speaking with Julia Gillard, who needs no introduction whatsoever. Julia, I want to move on to the broader issue of gender equality. Are we there yet? 2020 is the year that we're celebrating 25 years since the Beijing Declaration of Platform for Action, that amazing blueprint for gender equality that was signed by all nations, 189 nations of the United Nations, back in 1995 in Beijing. And we were supposed to be oh, certainly anticipated that by the year, by 25 years after the signing of that document, we would be celebrating great leaps in gender equality. But that's not the case. And in fact, in some areas where not only have we flatlined, but we're going backwards. And I'll also throw in, it's, it's an, also a, an important anniversary in terms of women, peace and security. The year 2000, 20 years ago was when the United Nations uh, Security Council Resolution 1325, Women, Peace and Security, was signed again by all nations and uh, we had expected that 20 years down the track we would have made more progress in those areas as well. So it's it's a very profound year this year, an important year for women to really be speaking out. It most certainly is an important year and a time to take stock but given the circumstances in which we're living, also to uh, be talking about what we can build in the days beyond the pandemic. I mean, I think, you know, contemporary history is going to be uh, divided into the time before COVID mm. and the time after it. And knowing that, as we do now, we can be campaigning right now to make the build back of economies, of healthcare systems, of systems of social support, a build back where gender equality, inclusion, diversity is at the centre. And I think, you know, on that, there are some positive signs. There are some troubling signs. I don't think that it's predetermined which way we will all go. It's still to play for. But in many ways, it's an opportunity that we've got to realise rather than miss and let go by. I don't want to put you on the spot here and get you to speak about domestic politics if you don't want to, but... I do wonder when you raise this about the build back, I know the Prime Minister here, Scott Morrison, has spoken about a snap back and the women I work with, the 5050 Foundation, we talk about a snap forward for the very reasons you've just said. It's an opportunity to really do some proper rebuilding. Gender equality in this country, I think, is, is stalled um, and globally we know it's stalled, but we fear also that there, we are going backwards in many respects. Are you confident here in Australia that that we can snap forward, we can build in a very um, progressive way 
um, when it comes to, you know, stronger policies that support women? I don't uh, get involved in contemporary uh, political commentary here in Australia, but what I would say about here, I would basically say right around the world, I think this pandemic has uh, given us a big lesson in the importance of government uh, and in many countries around the world, not here in Australia, but in many countries where governments have failed to respond to the health crisis, I think people will take out of this the need to uh, have better, better political leaders and better governmental and health structures. Uh, then the economic disruption. I mean, normally recessions, and we fortunately haven't had one in Australia for a very long time, but our earlier experience with recessions has tended to be around male jobs, not female jobs. It's mm. been about disruption to the manufacturing industry. Uh, this is much more a recession that is focused on female employment. We've learned some things about the value of caring that we needed to know and caring work and uh, the workforce in healthcare and the caring industries is overwhelmingly female. And we've learned some things about science and its uh, real importance to evidence-based policy as well as uh, the merits and stresses and strains of virtual work. And if we put all of that together, I think we can see some elements for a better future, a future where people focus on government and it getting things right, that they invest in their democracies, uh, and they do that with evidence and science guiding the way, and they also do it to try and foreground gender equality in the build back. Whilst the the pandemic has highlighted uh, uh, certainly the impact on women and, as you say, you know the the, the need for strong governance, um, and perhaps I'm just feeling a bit pessimistic today. But uh, you know, I, I don't see a lot of of what we have learned and are learning being therefore built into the snap forward or built into uh, re, um, you know policy reform, the budget in Australia, for example, in October didn't reflect the impact that the pandemic had had on women's workforce participation, for example. You know, that the specific spending on women really was quite minuscule. So whilst we've learnt a lot and we are learning a lot about the impact on women and also women's contribution, how can we be sure that these learnings are going to really mean we reform our policy, design an outlook. I think uh, you know we can. We you can never you can never be sure. I mean, unfortunately, life doesn't offer us that kind of certainty. Uh, but you can be mindful of your own actions in your own organisations, in the places that you've got some power, and in your own advocacy and. You know, all of us, wherever we are in the world, in Australia, other parts of the world, uh, we can uh, be uh, putting that at the forefront of what we're doing. Now, will governments listen? Will governments change? I describe that as, you know, still to play for in the sense of what ultimately nations around the world and the global community chooses to do arising mm. out of this pandemic. But you know, analytically, I think in times of huge disruption, there is also opportunity 
I can see us coming out of the pandemic having seized the opportunities for better gender diversity and inclusion. I can see us having missed that. I can see quite a negative vision of the future too, where the pandemic has exacerbated pre-existing inequalities and that's not addressed. You know, which of those futures lie before mm. us here or in any other part of the world depends on our actions in coming years. It's not set in stone. We can make a difference. I think you're a lot more optimistic than I am. <laughs> and we're, and look, you know, and which you have to be, I think, in your in your global leadership roles and your national leadership roles. But look, if we just talk about gender equality itself, even before the pandemic, the, the numerous global indices all point to a pretty dismal picture. I mean, we know that the World Economic Forum's uh, Global Gender Gap Index, which is one that that I quote a lot, the 2020 uh, report, tells us that the overall global gender gap isn't going to be closed for nine and for 99.5 years. It's going to take, and and it's going to take 257 years to close the economic gender gap, 95 years to close the political empowerment gap. I mean, and this is before the pandemic. And that's not the only um, negative global indicator. We've, uh, Australia, and Australia's doing very badly in that, but Australia's doing poorly in, in all those global indices. So what, what do you say when people say, oh, but gender equality, well, things are much better though, Julia, aren't they? I mean, there are a lot more women in leadership now. What do you say to that? <laughs> Uh, well, I think uh, two things can be true at the same time. If I look back on, uh, you know, the my uh, first experiences at Adelaide University, uh, which we've discussed, and compare it to today, yes, things are better. So, you know, I'm going to agree with that proposition. Uh, but I think it's then about pointing out very quickly the statistics you cite and that just because they're better doesn't mean that they're good enough or that we should down tools or that we should accept a situation where Australia is not amongst the leaders in the world in gender equality and on the World Economic Forum Index we're not. Um, you know, New Zealand, for example, gives us a flogging. So, that yeah. <laughs> Gosh, yeah. I mean, New Zealand is always up in the top 10. They're number six at the moment. Australia sits at number 44. We used to sit in 2006, we sat at 15 in the world. We're 44. And in, in, as I say, in all those global indices, we're going backwards. I mean, it's pathetic, isn't it? Well, uh, I think most Australians don't like hearing we've been flogged by New Zealand. I think <laughs> all of our all of our sporting rivalries come to the fore, uh, but this is an even more important contest in which we're being flogged uh, by New Zealand, by Norway, by Iceland, by so many countries around the world. Mm. So, you know, we can do better than this. We should be doing better than this. And anybody who thinks that it's satisfactory uh, that Australian women are girls and girls are living in a nation that's not at the forefront of gender equality uh, needs to ask themselves how they would explain it uh, to a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old that they're less interested in an equal future for them than apparently people in New Zealand are for their girls and young women of mm. the same age. Julia, in your global travels, which you do a great deal of now, and uh, and certainly having you know set up and founded the Global Institute for Women's Leadership based at uh, in in London at King's, 
you, you obviously have a, a lot of conversations with women in in um, global leadership positions. What do you see in places that are doing well when it comes to gender equality? And you mentioned just a moment ago the you know, those top four in the global gap index: Iceland, Norway, Finland, Sweden. They're always up there. In fact, Iceland has won top spot for the last eleven years. What do you see and hear that? they're doing that that perhaps here in Australia we're not and we could or should? I think there's a mix of things. Um, one, success breeds success. So the more women leaders there are, the easier it gets for the next woman leader. You know, Iceland is on its third woman leader, Norway's on its second. Um, you know, hardly, there are only two countries in the world that have had three women leaders, Iceland's mm. one and New Zealand's the other. So success breeds success. So you've got to keep propelling yourself forward. More women leading makes it easier for the next woman to lead. And I think there's an incredibly optimistic message in that. Uh, second, uh, what government does matters. Uh, these countries tend to be characterised by uh, social support systems that have got gender equality built in. Uh, so, for example, Norway uh, has a system of uh, parental leave where both mothers and fathers get parental leave and the leave allocated to the father is a use it or lose it form of leave. You can't transfer it to uh, the mother of the child and so fathers in Norway do take extended periods of time off paid at the birth of their children, uh, cementing in more co-equal parenting norms right from the start. And the research shows that if men are involved very hands-on in parenting uh, new babies, then that uh, shows in parenting styles five years later. It actually shows in things like uh, drinking levels are less, the survival rates of marriages is higher, uh, the care mm. for children is distributed more equitably. So things that government does matters. And then uh, constructing societal norms that people are thoughtful about and proud of. You know, when I went uh, to talk to Erna Solberg from Norway about what Norway does for a gender equality, she wants to tell you. She's a conservative politician and she's proud of it, you know, can't, uh, you would, would uh, chew your ear all day on the things that Norway does well while still pointing out some things that it needs to do better. Mm. She thinks the business community needs to do more. But it's become part of the national brand, part of the national ethos. We are people like this and, you know, we want to be known around the world for being good on gender equality. And I think with Australian eyes we can look at that and say it would be fantastic if we had a very big dose of that here. You know, it's interesting because I know you move now a lot in academic circles because of setting up the Global Institute for Women's Leadership where you have, and and I now also work in, an, in a university. In meeting international academics, I'm and always I have this conversation with them about gender equality and what it's like where they come from. I'm always fascinated to hear how when you really question these people how shocked they are when they come to Australia and they realize this sort of not just the inequality but how men and women have very that the, the social norms are very different they have very different attitudes and and for example I've got a, a, co a colleague from Finland which is is very high in the gender um, gap ratings but um, 
as in they do very well, I beg your pardon. Uh, but she even said, you know, she couldn't understand the, the behaviour of men in Australia when she first came here towards women and couldn't understand the, the sort of sense of separation and in the domestic sphere. And it's almost like for those of us who live here and those of us who are born here, we're kind of just so used to it, it's ubiquitous, we don't even notice the inequality or the, or the discrimination? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Hillary Clinton, uh, has, I've seen her use this story on a number of occasions when she's talking about uh, gender inequality. She tells a little tale about two young fish swimming upstream and they pass a old fish, uh, you know, who's swimming downstream who says to them, uh, the water's mighty fine today. And then one of the young fish turns to the other and says, what's water? Because, <laughs> you know, if you've never been out on the land in the air, why would you know what water is? It's just yeah. the thing you're in all the time. And I think that's true. And one of the important parts of uh, the global dialogue and the things that, you know, the World Economic Forum and others do and we're striving to do at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership is it can shake you up by doing the national comparisons and you think mm. to yourself, gee, we're a lot like X country, there's not much difference between us only to find that there is a considerable distance. But I would remind uh, that we used to be leaders and we should be proud yeah. of that. I uh, celebrated here in South Australia last year 125 years since uh, women got the right to vote and stand for parliament in South Australia. We were one of the very early adopters of that around the world. Mm. Uh, women from the Australian movement for the vote for women uh, went and influenced the campaign in the US and other parts mm. of the world. Muriel In fact, Matters. I think it was, I was just going to say, I think it was an Adelaidean and it was, yeah, Muriel Matters. I think she was yes. the very first woman to ever raise her voice in the House of Commons. I think that's, yes, you're right on that history and she was uh, famously carried out attached to a grill <laughs> because she'd sort of chained herself in there. Uh, Vida Goldstein uh, went to the US and met with the president uh, to talk about women's suffrage in the campaigning uh, in the US around the women's vote and it's 100 years this year uh, mm. that the amendment which brought women's voting happened. Uh, so, you know, we, we used to be a, a world mm. leader. I think part of giving us the energy to get back there is to uh, celebrate and foreground more of that history so it becomes an element of the Australian identity that we're all familiar with and that we all prize. Mm. Can you see a time when Australia again will be a world leader when it comes to gender equality? Oh, yes, women's, I, can, women's I can imagine it. I can imagine it. Things, uh, things can and do change. I mean, I, I look back on uh, my time as Prime Minister and uh, some of the things that happened and I get asked the question, you know, would, would it still be like that? And I don't think it would. I think things would be better, uh, better in part because of my experiences. So I think each woman who goes forward makes more space for the women to come. 
but better because we're having a much more lively conversation now about gender and politics than we did when I was Prime Minister. You know, amongst the views in the Canberra Press Gallery that were fashionable Mm. at the time uh, was a very deeply held view that nothing uh, in my Prime Ministership was being explained by gender. I was just being treated like every other Prime Minister had ever been treated. And I don't think anybody really would put that analysis in the Canberra Press Gallery today. And we see mobilisations of women in real time, you know, in the US election with Senator Mm. Harris contending to be vice president. There's a real time mobilisation. We have her back, which immediately highlights any treatment of her that is sexist or racist. Uh, so, you know, there, there is that energy and movement around. Yeah, oh, look, I'm sorry for sounding so negative and, and look, <laughs> I don't mean to be. But I, I can't help but think, you know, as you say that, yes, I want to I want to feel positive with you. But uh, there are so many examples, though. For In Australia, for example, 2018, it seemed to be the year that, you know, you couldn't open a newspaper or turn on the news without hearing a story about women and leadership. And, and in fact, at the time, the government's problem with women in politics and the lack of women in politics, and it was a really, it was a sort of a big year for the the, the government, um, the, the Liberal government, about its uh, treatment of women, bullying of women, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then that spilled over to the Labor Party that discussion as well, of course. So there was a lot of talk about it, and then it went quiet, and and still it. That talk didn't make any significant difference to the number of women who were um, promoted into leadership positions, political leadership I'm talking about. For example, when the Prime Minister announced his um, COVID coordination commission, initially there were 10 people, 10 seats around that table, only two of them were given to women. I mean, it's interesting. We got a lot of international bad press in 2018 about women and politics, but then it sort of shut down, went quiet after the election, and I'm not sure if the lessons have been learned, if it's actually making any difference. We still don't have any substantial talk about quotas, actual quotas, formal quotas for women in parliament. What do you think? I do think structural solutions are important and uh, the energy that is uh, brought around women and leadership in politics, I think you're right, you know, it... it uh, comes and it goes. It's not uh, going to be, you know, sort of uh, the front of the news each and every day. But it is important, uh, in my view, that when there are those uh, waves of inquiry, that the energy is then channeled into a clear demand for change and a clear structural demand for change. You know, on the Australian Labor Party side of politics, you know, the ALP is a different political party than it would have been if we had failed to adopt the affirmative action rule in the early 1990s. Adopting that rule has driven Mm. all sorts of changes, including far more women in Parliament. And now when you look at the ALP team around the various parliaments in our country, national and state, 
uh, you you effectively see round about half-half, not always, but round about half-half. The reason I think the Conservatives are so far behind on that is that they got themselves in a sort of confused state about uh, quotas. They somehow thought wrongly, in my view, that they were anti-merit. Uh, they thought that sort of networking events and the like would be enough, and it clearly hasn't been uh, because the... Labor Party and the progressive side of politics disproportionately provides the women into Australian parliaments. So clarity about exactly what it is you want changed really matters. And I don't think Mm. out of that debate in 2018 that that clarity came. That's interesting. This is the last negative thing I'm going to say, I absolutely promise. But do you you feel conscious of a brewing backlash around women's progress and and that's being expressed in attitudes and and I raise this because at the foundation I work at we did a a, glo- a national study a survey of gen- of Australians attitudes to gender equality and we were really shocked particularly um, by the attitudes of young men about what was appropriate and not appropriate for for women and particularly around women and leadership but you know I wonder with women becoming more and more visible in leadership roles do you sense that there is a a, a mounting backlash around attitudes that that sort of shows itself in fairly ugly ways? I think that, uh, unfortunately, uh, every wave of uh, feminist progress has seen a backlash. And looking around the world, I think there's clear evidence of that. It's at a different amplitude in different places. The wave is not the same everywhere. But in, you know, the United States, the 2016 election, Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton, Mm. I think so much of that campaign, not all of it, but so much of that campaign was highly gendered and a lot of the appeal uh, to vote against Hillary Clinton was done using sexist tropes and imagery. Mm. So that was part mm. of the backlash. If we look at places like Brazil, President Bolsonaro, I think you can see uh, through his attitudes, the attitudes in you know Hungary and other places, very visible campaigning against uh, women's empowerment, mm. uh, uh, you know, naked political pitch to kind of take back your country, the subtext of which is take it back from these you know, mouthy, pushy women who are trying to take things away from you. Um, so, yes, it's there and it's alive in politics around the world and it's something for us to talk about, think about and work out how to counteract. In many ways, I think the backlash we've seen in places like the US is it, it's expressed against women's equality and women's leadership, but it's causal factors are about economic and social dislocation and policies and plans that address uh, the fact that many individuals and many communities feel left behind will help uh, sort of, you know, quiet the waters uh, and uh, help people feel more reassured that there's a place in a future for them and they don't have to be quite so worried about coming waves of equality whether that's Mm. on gender or on race or anything else. 
Julia, I, I want to finish up by asking you, going right back to, I guess, where we started, what you're up to, but where you are heading over the next decade or so, where, do, where will Julia Gillard be in 10 years' time? And I, I preface that by saying you've clocked up so many um, firsts, so many amazing um, positions, leadership positions. You've, you know, founded the Global Institute for Women's Leadership. You've you've done so many things. I mean, in 10 years' time, will we find you on a, a sunny island off the Great Barrier Reef sunning yourself and fishing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that would be the first time I'd ever been fishing in my life, so <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> And and I burn I burn pretty easily in the sun, so unlikely as well. Uh, if you found me out on a beautiful island in the Great Barrier Reef, you would see me, uh, you know, big big floppy hat, long sleeves, all the rest of it, warding off the sun, or perhaps in the water in a wetsuit, trying to make sure I didn't get sunburned. Um, I, you know, the next next period for me is going to bring some consolidations and some things that are new. I want to keep on the journey about women's leadership with the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, making a contribution on that as I can. Um, you know, I don't have immediate new plans about another book or anything like that, but uh, whatever contribution I can make on women's leadership, I want to be making it. I will uh, obviously be continuing uh, work here in Australia. Uh, I'm, you know, very passionate about the work that we do at Beyond Blue and for the mm. next few years we'll be continuing the con uh, contribution there. I am taking up a new challenge, chairing the Wellcome Trust, which mm. is a major funder of health and medical research with a particular expertise in infectious diseases. Mm. Uh, that's uh, something that I uh, agreed to do before the pandemic hit. Uh, so uh, there we have it, fairly amazing, but I think it's something uh, whose it was a cause I was interested in anyway, and now it's a cause uh that is at the centre of the future of our world. So I'll be very pleased to make a contribution there. Uh, so they're the big things. Um, you know, would I strive for a bit more work-life balance? Possibly. <laughs> I still always find myself uh, overcommitted with uh, more things uh, to do than maybe I should have said yes to. Uh, but I'm not, uh, I kind of accept I'm not very good at uh, balancing that. And whilst I'll strive to get better at it, I suspect in 10 years' time, you'll still find me saying that I've got more to do and <laughs> I'm a bit overcommitted. Uh, so not retired. Tired, uh, on a beach at that stage, maybe <laughs> after that, but not in not in a ten year time horizon. I, I doubt it. I don't think you'd ever retire as such. And look, last, 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 lucky last question. But where do you get your energy from? Where, what, what sustains you? How do you do it? <laughs> well, you know, some some days you're dragging yourself around. I still have days like that. Um, so it's, you know, not always um, uh, bounding around with unbridled enthusiasm. <laughs> uh, but I am generally a pretty enthusiastic person. And that is because I've had the wonderful opportunity in this phase of my life to select things that I really believe in and am passionate about. 
I had a real sense of purpose when I was in politics. I believe in politics. I know it's unfashionable to say so, but I think it's an honourable profession where you can put your values into action. Uh, mm -hmm. I was hungry to do it and, uh, you know, I'm glad that I had the experience and was able to get some very big things done. So all of that, that sense of purpose and commitment is ultimately what has sustained me over many years. So you're not going to slow down at all, ever, I don't think. <laughs> I don't know. E ever is a long time. <laughs> uh, so maybe at some point. But I've uh, uh, turned uh, 59 in September, so I've got the big 6-0 coming up next year. Uh, so I think I've got a few more good years in me yet. Oh, well, you're a, you're a 61er, so you were born the same year as Obama, Barack Obama, same year as George Clooney. You're in good company. <laughs> Prime Minister John Key from New Zealand. In exactly. Good yes. Very good company. Julia Gillard, thank you so much for, for giving us this time and for joining Broad Talk. And it's been such a delight to speak with you. It's been a real honour and a great, a great privilege. So I thank you so much for your time. And I wish you all the very, very best. And I hope you do get a little bit of time to lie on the couch and, you know, just binge watch movies at some stage. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Virginia. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Mm. I have strong suspicions that Julia Gillard doesn't do lazy or just lazing around. Well, I hope you really enjoyed that discussion. I'd love to hear your thoughts about some of those issues that we discussed. What do you think? Is she too much of an optimist about gender equality? Julia says now we're having a much more lively conversation about gender and politics than we ever did when she was in office. Maybe so, but is it actually making any difference? Are women faring better? Or is there just a lot of window dressing going on? Ineffective strategies, soft policies, and men in leadership simply paying lip service to the idea of gender equity. Join our Facebook group, Broad Talk Roundtable, and let me know what you think. Most importantly, subscribe to Broad Talk so you don't miss any of the podcasts coming up. We have a really outstanding range of fascinating women and men talking about all these issues and more in Series 2. And some of them get quite personal. And these conversations coming up are conversations we need to have. 2020 has been an awful year in so many ways. The coronavirus has vividly illustrated some pretty dark corners of society, from massive global inequality to the precarity of many people's existence, and tragically, the increasing prevalence of domestic violence. Strongman leaders have shown that they're not up to its challenge. Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, three leaders cut from the same cloth, even if quite different personalities, have all failed to protect their societies – causing hundreds of thousands of unnecessary deaths and utterly failed to protect and support women hardest hit. And while it's too simplistic to say the women have done what the men haven't been able, one look at Jacinda Ardern or Angela Merkel's leadership in this year of crisis shows some pretty stark differences. Finally, dear listener, a word to you. So many of you listening to this will have seen your own lives changed immeasurably over the last 12 months. Many of you, I know, have suffered hardships and some of you life-changing events and felt despair, helplessness 
or even anger. And to all of you, I just want to, I want to congratulate you on getting through it, on persevering. Look carefully and you can see the chance for a brighter future and a much better 2021. From the miraculous steps that science has made in finding a vaccine to an increased respect on relying on experts and expert advice to a realisation that empathetic, calm and kind leadership can lead to better outcomes for all of us, most importantly for our whole society. Those are all torches we can carry into the new year and they're torches that we'll use to continue to shine a light on gender equity. I wish you all the very, very best for this Christmas holiday period and a much brighter 2021 and I really look forward to joining you again very soon. My special thanks to the world's most wonderful podcast producer, Martin Pierce, without whom none of this would reach your earbuds. Thank you, Martin. Until Series 2, thanks for joining us. Happy chatting. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.